Welcome to the Wanderers History Podcast and to the first proper episode of the new series Rulers and Monarchs of the 16th Century Mediterranean. The first episode will be dedicated to arguably one of the most important figures of 16th century European and Ottoman history, Suleiman I, also known as the Magnificent or the Lawgiver. Kanuni Sultan Suleiman was the 10th and longest reigning Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, reigning from 1520 until his death in 1566. In order to explain the reasons for which Suleiman's reign was so emblematic for Ottoman and European history, we have to look at the reign of his predecessor and father, Ottoman Sultan Selim I, also known as Selim the Grim, and the one who led the start of the remarkable expansion and growth of the Ottoman Empire in the Levant and Northern Africa in the 16th century. Before we continue, I would like to remind you to please hit that subscribe button to make sure you never miss any new history material from this podcast. Let's begin. Selim I became Sultan in April 1512, and in 1514 he scored a decisive victory against the Safavids at the Battle of Caldiran in August 1514. Through this, the Ottomans managed to annex eastern Anatolia and northern Mesopotamia from the Safavids and even briefly managed to capture the stronghold of Tabriz. After that, Selim focused his attention on one of the most prosperous regions in the world, which was at the time the Levant. Through the Ottoman Mamluk War of 1516-1517, Selim managed to firstly conquer the Syrian region of the Levant through the victory at the Battle of Marj Dabik in 1516 and then the Battle of Ridania in January of 1517, allowing the Ottoman Empire to conquer Egypt, leading also to the collapse of the Mamluk Sultanate. As a result, by 1517, Selim managed to conquer both the Levant and Egypt, which had important trading ports such as Alexandria, where for example the Venetian Republic conducted a large part of their maritime trade. In 1520, Selim I passed away, but his relatively short reign of eight years would allow his son Suleiman to take the Ottoman Empire to Zenith. Selim, at the request of Suleiman, would be buried at the Yavuz Selim Mosque. Within weeks of his ascension, Venetian envoy Bartolomeo Contarini described Suleiman as the following, quote, The Sultan is only 25 years old. He was actually 26. Tall and slender, but tough, with a thin and bony face. Facial hair is evident, but only barely. The Sultan appears friendly and in good humor. Rumor has it that Suleiman is aptly named, enjoys reading, is knowledgeable, and shows good judgment. End of quote. Despite this description, Suleiman would spare no time in making his intentions well known. Main secondary sources for this episode will be firstly the growth and decay of the Ottoman Empire by Dmitri Kantemir, and then the history of the Ottoman Empire written by Aurel Decey, Romanian historian and orientalist, leading figure of the Turkish National Archives after 1947. Other sources include Brodel's Mediterranean, Volume 2, Andre Klotz's Suleiman the Magnificent, and Suraya Faroki's The Ottoman Empire and the World Around It, amongst many other sources. 
Aurel de Che talks about Suleiman's reign as an actual era of the Ottoman Empire and mentions the reports of European ambassadors from Venice, France, Spain, the Holy Roman Empire who documented his rule and how he made the Ottoman Empire one of the strongest empires in the world during his reign. De Che also mentions the rise of Charles V as Holy Roman Emperor and one can argue main rival in Europe. On the 30th of September 1520, Suleiman would inaugurate his policy roughly translated to as justice and well-doing. One of his first policies were to actually provide reparations for some actions taken by his father, Selim I. One of those was the forced resettlement of 1,800 people from Cairo and Alexandria and Egypt to Constantinople. Suleiman reversed that and allowed them to come home. Second policy was revoking the 1518 interdiction of sewing silk, mainly directed at the Safavid Empire, allowing for restitution of confiscating merchandise along with financial reparations take place. At the beginning, Suleiman also imposed a brutal order by executing, for example, Kafir Aga, known as the bloody Kafir, who's known for his bloodthirsty and reckless behavior. He also executed many Sanjak Beys that were selling free people as slaves. The first year showed a remarkable contrast between Selim I and Suleiman the Magnificent. Suleiman insisted on the rule of law and aimed to use stability as a pillar of the growth of the Ottoman Empire. From a financial perspective during Suleiman, there is a transfer of power to the Grand Vizier. De Che gives an example explained also by Austrian Orientalist and historian Joseph von Hammer. For example, the Valley of Egypt, which is previously mentioned, was conquered by Salim I by the end of 1517, was a position created by Suleiman, and the first one was Hadim Suleiman Pasha. The example that von Hammer gave with Hadim Pasha was in the first years, the revenue sent to Constantinople from Egypt worth a total of 800,000 golden ducats. What happened afterwards was that Hadim was relocated and in his place came Vali Husrev, who would send from Egypt the next year 1.2 million golden ducats. Suleiman and his advisors were alarmed by this and ordered an inquiry thinking that the new Vali had raised the taxes in Egypt, which would turn into unrest. Vali Husrev argued that there was an increase of production given the investments in irrigation that Hadim had made. Also during Hadim's reign as Vali of Egypt, he had supplementary costs with the fleet in Alexandria. In the end, what happened was that Hadim was brought back and the 400,000 golden ducats difference were reinvested in irrigations in Egypt. This shows how much Suleiman cared about maintaining peace and economic stability in all of the territories of the Ottoman Empire. So from early stages, we can tell that Suleiman cemented his status and name of lawgiver, wanting to have a powerful, expansive empire which integrated its newer territories organically. However, this in itself presented a bit of a problem because it demanded expansions and successful campaigns. 
And because of his long reign of 45 years, 11 months and 7 days, we would see 13 expeditions in total that Suleiman personally led. They would be spread out and focused on Central and Southeastern Europe, which aimed to expand Rumelia, the European part of the Ottoman Empire, but also parts of the Mediterranean, especially in the East, which brought the Porte in conflict with Venice and Genoa. The Ottomans would also have to fight in North Africa and Iran. So in chronological order, the campaigns that Suleiman personally led would be the following. The first one, in 1521, saw a long campaign of 5 months and 13 days, which ended up with the occupation of Belgrade, something that his grandfather failed to do in 1456 against John Hunyadi. The second campaign in 1522 redirected his attention to Rodos and what was thought to be an impregnable defense where Suleiman managed to expel the Knights of St. John who would eventually relocate, thanks to Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, to Malta. The third campaign would be in 1526 and would see the crushing Ottoman victory at Mohac which led to the collapse of Hungary, the death of the last Jagiellonian King Louis II of Hungary and threatened the heart of the Habsburg Austrian lands in Vienna. Fourth would be in 1529 Suleiman making a bold move launching an expedition of seven months and seven days at Vienna which turned out to be his first major failure. The fifth expedition would be a half a year one called Alaman Seferi translated to the German expedition followed by the sixth one between 1534 and 1536. More than a year and a half we would see him have an expedition in the two Iraqs, called the Irakain Seferi. The seventh campaign would be in 1537 in Puglia, followed in 1538 by the eighth one to Moldova, where we see the Kara Bogdan expedition. Ninth one would be in 1541 at Buda, followed by the 10th in 1543 at Estergom. In 1548, for one year and eight months, there would be a second expedition in Iran. The 12th one in 1553, for one year and 11 months in Nachevan. And the 13th one, finally, his final expedition at Sigetvar where we would see his passing away. It's important to note that we do not see important expeditions such as the one at Malta in 1565, which he did not personally command, leaving it instead to Dragut Pasha, Mustafa Pasha, and Piale Pasha. All in all, we have more than four decades of warfare which saw the Ottoman Empire reach its zenith, though one can argue that afterwards, towards the mid-1560s, one can see signs of decline, especially economic and military. Part of this decline would be due to the problematic disputes in succession, namely between his sons, Bayezid and Selim the Sot. We shall return to that point later on. Suleiman had to maintain a balance of economic growth at home while also planning for strategic expansions in order to keep the Janissaries satisfied. After Rhodes, they had more than two years of military inactivity which would lead to revolts, such as the one in March 1525 of the Janissaries, 
who would actually just sack the Konaks or the palaces of the second vizier Ayaz Pasha. The chase said that Suleiman's reaction was swift as he killed three rebellious janissaries and ordered the execution of the leaders, mainly Mustafa Aga. However, afterwards, he gave the janissaries 100,000 gold in ducats, thus re-establishing order. Afterwards, Suleiman would have to deal with enemies not from Europe or Northern Africa, but he would have to face eastwards towards the Safavid Empire, where Shah Tahmasp rose to power in 1524. Suleiman would send him a stern reminder of what would happen should the new Shah want to start a new conflict, giving the example of what Selim's campaign and how that ended. In response, the Safavids proposed an alliance with Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, and Jagiellonian King Louis II of Hungary. It would be of no surprise that these move movements came while Suleiman campaigned in Hungary in 1526. Five years previously, with the capturing of Belgrade in 1521, Suleiman managed to annex most of the Balkans, thus opening the path to Central Europe. Rhodes in 1522 represented an important moment in terms of Ottoman expansion in the Mediterranean, especially in the eastern parts. After Rhodes was conquered, there were very interesting exchanges between Suleiman and Philippe de Villiers, Grand Master of the Order of the Knights of St. John. Suleiman agreed to most of Philippe's demands, which were the following. First of all, he asked for rights to religious freedom for Christians that remained on the island of Rhodos. Second of all, Christian children were not to be taken as wards of, or devshirme, as in insurance against rebellions against the Porte. Third of all, five years of tax exemptions were to be provided for the people of Rhodos. Christians would also be granted a three-year period after 1523 if they decided to relocate. And finally, transports of the Knights of St. John had to be provided by the Ottoman Empire to the Kingdom of Candia, or Crete. Suleiman said on the last meeting between them that, quote, I have to be saddened by the fact that I have pulled him out of this place and this country, this Gyaur, at this age, end quote. Gyaur was somewhat of a pejorative slur used by the Ottomans referring to infidels or to Christians. Rhodos, or Rhodes, and the success there would show that Suleiman would keep his word and have a sense of honor, especially against formidable opponents such were the Knights of St. John in 1522. In 1526, there would be another resounding success, this time against the Kingdom of Hungary, which the previous century posed significant resistance, especially under John Hunyadi. The state of the Hungarian kingdom by 1526 was adequately described by Pope Clement VII in a letter to Papal Nuncio Burgio dated 18th of January 1526, reading, quote, This kingdom is not able to defend itself, and it is dependent on the disposition of the enemy. When they are barely able to pay the garrison at the borders, how can they expect to be able to face the entirety of the sultan's power? The king is so poor that it is said that he often lacks food supplies. 
The Hungarian nobles care all but for themselves, and even if there would be cooperation, without war preparations, nothing can be achieved. They can wage a battle, but if they lose it, they don't have reinforcements, where to retreat to wait for assistance. And assistance from whom? The Holy Roman Empire is fraught by turbulences and are naturally an adversary of the Magyars. And Poland just signed a peace with the Turks. I thus realize that if the Sultan comes with a strong army, there is no hope for the country to be saved. End quote. Pope Clement's words would foreshadow the conclusion of the Battle of Mohach in 1526. What drew the ire of Suleiman the Magnificent was the fact that Louis II of Hungary tried to interfere in the affairs of Moldova and Wallachia and form an alliance against the Ottomans. On April 23, 1526, Suleiman left with a large army on what would become a traditional route for the Ottomans along the Balkan region, starting in Adrianople on route to Sofia, then Niche and Belgrade. The chase account put forward a number consisting of 43,000 cavalry and 24,000 infantry, altogether 67,000 plus 300 cannon for the Ottomans. Meanwhile, the Hungarians were said to have 14,000 cavalry and 30,000 infantry, all in all 44,000 plus 80 cannon. Initially, the Hungarians tried to pose resistance at Petrovaradin, or Petervarad, unsuccessfully so. This would lead to the battle near the plain of Mohac on August 29, 1526. It was a battle which only lasted for two hours. It showed remarkable discipline and organization of the Ottoman army, which crushed the Hungarians, who also lost their king. Hungary would be partitioned with the center and southwest annexed by the Ottoman Empire, the northwest by Ferdinand II, and Transylvania and the Banat region would fall also under Ottoman influence. On September 11th, Suleiman would enter Buda, leave a garrison, and retreat. He would entrust the defenses of Buda to Zapolia, Transylvanian voivod, who would not interfere for any part at Mohac and stay neutral. Hungary would find itself with two kings, one Ferdinand, brother of Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, and the other John Zapolia, backed by Suleiman. With the annexation of most of Hungary, this would mean that the Ottoman Empire, through Rumelia, now bordered the Austrian Habsburg lands. This meant that Vienna would be the next target. I'll talk about the Siege of Vienna in 1529 and much more in the next part of the episode. Thank you for listening to the Wanderers History Podcast and to the first episode about Suleiman the Magnificent, parts of the rulers and monarchs of the 16th century Mediterranean series. Please make sure you subscribe to make sure you never miss any new material from the podcast. Until the next time, all the best. <laughs>